0: Hi gardening friends, welcome plant people I am so glad you're here with me today Here we are, it's the very last weekend of April And I know, already, it's already the end of April And that's just crazy to me The month has totally flown by And, I, I don't know, it's weird I'm not sure why, but April always seems to go really so quickly. Here in Taylor and our part of Central Texas, it's also warmed up really quickly. We've had some really high 80s here in Taylor and a couple days that got pretty close to 90 or maybe above. I don't know. I haven't been paying that much attention. It's been kind of a busy time. Anyway, I think that any day now, we are just going to wake up very soon and we are just going to be in summer. It's going to be summertime. We're going to have the summertime temperatures and I think it's going to be that way and through the rest of the fall. Anyway, while we have them, enjoy these cooler, breezier days while we can. You know, they say April showers bring May flowers, but unfortunately for us in Central Texas, we have not gotten very much rain in April. And right now it's abnormally dry. And actually in some parts of Central Texas, we're kind of flirting with some moderate drought conditions. And I don't think that's cool. I wish I could make it rain I have ideas. They don't work, but I don't know. Maybe everybody needs to go out and wash their car or can somebody please plan an outdoor wedding or something really important so that we can get some rain soon. Like I said, I have ideas. They're not great ideas. (laughs) Anyway around my yard, my purple irises are blooming right now, and I gotta say, they look amazing. They have these dark, dark, vibrant purple flowers that are huge. I mean, the blossoms are like big as my hands, and there are just so many of them right now, and I absolutely love it, I love them. I really wish I could tell you what kind they are, but I don't know. I can't. I can't tell you. And, you know, these these iris that I have, they were pass-along pr- plants. Um, my sister-in-law let me dig some up um, from her house before they moved. And it's been like 12 years. She didn't know what kind they were. So it's just this mystery, a beautiful purple, magical mystery. (laughs) I just love this time of year. Even, I mean, everything is just green and flowering, but another thing that's happening right now is we've got some visitors, and I'm really excited about it because the whistling ducks are back. Yes, there are ducks that whistle. Well, at least they sound like they're whistling instead of quacking these ducks have a call that sounds really similar to a whistle and I think they are just the coolest freaking ducks ever um, These whistling ducks that we have here in Taylor they're call, um, they're called black-bellied whistling ducks and you know as the name suggests in addition to having a whistle sounding call, they have black bellies they have black feathers on their undersides and they are really neat looking ducks they are mostly brown but then they have blacks black feathers on their bellies but they also have these bright kind of peachy orangish pinkish bills they have bright coral bills and they have like really sleek and slim bodies and they have long thin necks. but they also have these like really unusual long pink legs and pink feet. They they look so cool to me. They have They also have like a white thin ring of um, feathers around their eyes. And so they have like a dark eye, and they're kind of outlined in this white. And then it kind of makes them look like cartoon characters, like cartoon ducks or something. I don't know. They are amazing. I think they are really, really cute. These black-bellied whistling ducks are passing through our area, flying on to other places to breed. We only see them in the spring, but... They really are more commonly seen year-round further south, like in South Texas, Mexico, Central, and South America. Black-bellied whistling ducks are interesting in another way. They tend to mate for life, and if you see them flying around Taylor, you will probably notice them roosting and flying in pairs. I think that's so sweet. The past few years... Um, here at our house we've had a couple pairs of whistling ducks that will roost up in the upper canopy of our pecan trees in the front yard they don't really seem to hang around very long maybe a month or so but i love them and it i don't i don't know it just feels really special that they like to hang out here at my house at least for a little while You know, I'm not really sure what it is, what's going on, but it seems like folks have been really, really busy lately. I know I have been, and I have some friends also that have mentioned how busy they are and that they have not planted their gardens yet. But if you're in the same boat, or maybe you're a little more behind on your vegetable gardens this year, Don't worry about it because there's still time for planting all the great summer veggies. But you don't want to wait too long because the planting window for many of the really great things is starting to close and will be closed by early May, right when the temperatures start ramping up. Right now, we can plant all of these warm season vegetables from seeds. Now through the end of the month, we can plant beans, cantaloupe, chard, and other warm season greens, cucumbers, okra, southern peas like black-eyed peas. We can plant summer and winter squash, gourds, and melons. We can also plant sweet potato slips as well as trampled transplant eggplant peppers and tomato seedlings tomatoes and eggplants need to be in the ground by the end of the month so they have lots of time to get their roots established tomatoes are big plants and take a little bit to get established they have big root systems that need some time to to develop. When daytime temperatures consistently are above 90 degrees, plants like tomatoes will just stop blooming and they won't set fruit. So get your tomatoes in the ground while it's still fairly cool so they have plenty of time to to develop a healthy root system and put on lots of tomatoes before it gets too hot. So for sure, get any tomatoes you have planted. Get that done. If you like ornamental gourds, it's a really great time to plant them. Gourds are members of the cucurbit family, and they're related to cucumbers, melons, winter, and summer squash. Most gourds are edible when the fruits are small and immature, but they tend to get bitter as they grow and mature. So it's kind of like why people don't really eat them because they don't taste great. There is really a huge variety of gourds out there. Many of them we grow just for fall decorations. These decorative gourds are called Cucurbita gourds and they're native to America. And they come in all kinds of shapes and sizes and colors, and they have these really cool patterns. And they have some are stripy with lots of ridges, and some are just covered in bumps and warts. They're really interesting looking, and if you plant them now, you stand a chance of having lots and lots of gourds that you, you can share with your friends and family. So that they can have nice fall decorations, these gourds grow and look much like much like winter squash plants, and they also have those distinctive yellow squash flowers. Cucur, um, Cucurbita gourds have separate male and female flowers, just like our garden. Squash plants Most flowering plants Have all of their reproductive Parts kind of crammed together In one place So the boy Parts are conveniently Located right up next To the girl parts The stamen and the pistol And they're surrounded by the petals When everything goes right A bug will land on the flower And While they're there having some nectar, they unintentionally transfer pollen to the plant. Cucurbit plants, garden squash, cucumbers, gourds, melons, they're different. They put out separate male and female flowers. And this makes setting fruit just a little more challenging because They are dependent on a bug going from flower to flower with pollen from a male flower and then transferring it to a female flower. I don't know why it is, but that's just the way it is. They got to be a little bit different. The male flowers have straight stems that look like the blossom is sitting directly on top of the stem. Female flowers have a little bump just under the petals. Kind of looks like a little bulge between the flower and the stem. If you are inclined, you can totally pollinate them by hand. Just take a little paintbrush or a cotton swab and gently brush the pollen sacs in the center of the male flower, and then dab the brush into the center of the female flower, and this is gonna help improve pollination rates. Depending on how many squash plants you have, it can be a little time consuming, but it is helpful if your plants really don't seem to be developing fruits. I mean, all you need is a little paintbrush. Just get in there, transfer some DNA from the male to the female, and that's gonna help you get some squash. I think it's an easy thing to do and you can pretend you're a bug going flower to flower. Gourds may be one of the oldest cultivated intentionally grown crops around because they have been valued as storage containers and used as utensils these utility type of gourds are called laganaria gourds and they come in all kinds of shapes and sizes and people have made so many different kinds of things from them from storage containers dishes bowls spoons drinking vessels water dippers and even birdhouses. Lagunaria gourds develop smooth stems and soft, large leaves with white flowers. The fruits turn tan and kind of brownish as they mature. When left to dry, the fruits will develop hard, thin shells that are really durable and will last for years. Now that we are all modern and have regular dishes and glass bottles and whatnot, we don't raise area type gourds for, you know, using every day. They're more kind of a crafty or novelty type plant, but they're still really popular and they're fun to grow. Um, So you might want to give them a try. You know, one thing that you can use these type of gourds for out in the garden is that you can use them to make birdhouses to attract certain insect-eating birds like purple martins to your yard. Any birds that like to build nests like in like really cozy places will appreciate a gourd birdhouse. Cavity nesters like swallows, nuthatches, even kestrels and small owls will build a nest in a gourd. Purple martins are one of the most popular birds that will take up residence in a gourd birdhouse. They are popular wild birds and It's a nice idea to attract them to your yard because they are insect-eating machines. They eat a wide variety of flying insects and will catch and consume their dinner while they're flying. Isn't that cool? I know I've heard, I've even seen recently that people are interested in having purple Martin houses and bird houses on their property because they're supposed to be eating all kinds of mosquitoes, but that's not actually really true. Purple Martins prefer larger flying insects like wasp flies, winged ants. They'd rather eat a beetle or a moth or a butterfly and even dragonflies than eating mosquitoes and it's probably because it takes a lot more mosquitoes to fill their bellies than i'm gonna say like a dragonfly they're just so much bigger But to make a birdhouse from a area gourd, you need to plant those seeds now through the end of July. The sooner you get them planted, the better, since all plants are going to struggle if you wait until July to try to plant them and grow them and get them established. Because it's brutal in July. (sighs) If I was a little tiny plant, I'd probably die, but... Anyway, these types of gourds take kind of a long time to get established and set fruit. We're talking like at least four months before they are ready to harvest. Once the leaves start to fall off later in the year and the vines start to wither and turn brown, that's when you can clip them off and let them finish drying. You want to take these gourds... And hang them like in a sunny spot outside or place them in a warm, dry spot. Now, it's going to take another four or five months for them to completely dry before you can like carve a hole in them and use them as a birdhouse. But they let you know when they're ready. Once a gourd is fully dried you can shake them and you can hear the seeds rattling on the inside these types of gourds are they're gonna just develop some mold or mildew as they dry out that's just the nature of these gourds and as long as they don't wrinkle and start to rot you really don't have to worry about the mildew spots You can simply spritz them and wipe them down with a mild disinfectant, like 90% water to 10% bleach. And you know what, they're gonna be fine. You're gonna wipe down the gourds and kill all the mold spores. And then you'll be able to use them. You are listening to Plow and Hose on KBSR Black Sparrow Radio. If you are enjoying my show, I hope you will go over to www.blacksparrowmusicparlor.com and check out the station and learn all about the great shows and music coming out of our station broadcasting from Taylor, Texas. While you're out on the internet, be sure to stop by the Plow and Hose Facebook page or the Instagram or the website and like, and share it with your groaning friends or head over to wherever you get your podcast and subscribe to the plan host podcast. If you'd like the flexibility of being able to play pause and rewind my show whenever you want, download some episodes and leave a review. It's super quick. Just click on the stars, leave a, a few words, a little sentence about what you like about the show. It's going to be really helpful because it's going to let other folks know that Plow and Hose is a pretty good show. And if you've already left me a review, thank you so much. I love the reviews and I really, really appreciate your support. Okay, let's talk more about gourds. So last year, I bought a little packet of loofah seeds and planted them in little cups. And before I had a chance to get them all planted, all the seedlings died. I don't really remember what happened. I might have left them in direct sunlight for too long or forgot to water them or... I don't know, maybe both. I don't remember. That was like a year ago. I don't I don't know what happened. It wasn't like traumatizing enough for me to like remember, so I don't know. But in the past, we have grown loofah here at our house. um, and they were awesome. So when a friend offered me some loofah seeds, I was like, Yeah. I want those. Hand them over. (laughs) And she gave me like a sandwich bag full of leaf seeds. So I was like, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to grow them again. Lufas are a really great vining plant and they can quickly cover a fence and they put out these sweet, simple, yellow flowers that when they find, when they get pollinated, they develop big, long kind of cucumber looking fruits. They're sometimes called um, spun gourd because if you let the fruits fully mature and then dry out, you can peel off the crusty outer skin. And what you get it looks a whole lot like a sea sponge. I'm sure you're probably familiar with what I'm talking about, the blonde kind of straw colored scrubby bath accessory that's used for exfoliating skin. Lufas are multi-purpose cords when mature and dry. They are really tough and fibrous and you can use them in the kitchen, you can use them in the bathroom. You can use them for cleaning dishes or cleaning your skin. I don't recommend that you use one loofah for both, so maybe keep those <laughs> separated. Um, but when they are young and fresh, loofahs are tender and edible, and they're actually a staple vegetable in like China and in India. They are very plain, kind of blah, but they take on, they soak up all any like sort of sauces that you cook them in, and they really take in the flavors of other ingredients. They are really popular in saucy type dishes like curries. Loofahs are a great source of nutrients like vitamin A, vitamin B. All the B vitamins, actually. Potassium, magnesium, and, of course, they're high in fiber. Lufas make a really nice annual vine. One plant can grow up to 30 feet and cover an ugly or boring fence really quickly. They have delicate, sweet little flower. Eh, Sweet flowers. I don't know. They're bigger than, like, a half dollar but they have five rounded petals and just the most cheery, lovely, sunshiny, lemony yellow color. The flowers, I don't know, maybe bigger than a half dollar, maybe like the size of a tennis ball, but the bees and other pollinators just love loofah flowers. I, of course, I am a big fan of weird and unusual plants, and loofahs are awesome for us. They really fit that bill. You can wash yourself with them. You can scrub your dishes with them. They are pretty, and you can even eat them. Loofahs have a really long growing season. They take about two and a half months to grow and set fruit. To enjoy loofahs as a vegetable, pick them when they are baby size, like two or three inches long. They look a whole lot like pickling cucumbers, but they're smooth and pale green. When they are this size, they are just tender and mild, and you can eat them raw. They are pretty bland, kind of like raw zucchini or yellow squash, but most folks cook their loofah because when you do and you have other ingredients in the pan, like spices and salt and other sauces, they just kind of soak up all the flavors from the other ingredients. Now, if you want to grow lufus for the sponges, all you need to do is just let them grow. When the fruits get to be about six inches long, they start to develop a very fibrous vascular system. And this is when they start getting very, very tough. And the fruit becomes bitter and you can't even stand to eat it. It's so unpalatable. But if you want sponges, just let them grow and grow and grow. And they can get up to two feet long. When fully mature, lupa gourds will start to turn yellow and then brown, and they'll get all wrinkly and they'll start to dry up. Once the plants are completely dried on the vine, then you can pick them. They're usually done by late November, right around the first frost. This is the stage when they become irresistible to little kids and they can quickly become repurposed as bats or weapons if you have a good harvest let the kids play with a the couple they can have a few minutes of fun just whacking each other with giant dried loofah sponges <laughs> Once loofahs are dried, all you need to do is crack and peel the crispy outer skin. Just pick off all that dried skin and bits of pulp. You want to like trim the ends off, both ends, and then just shake out all the black seeds. You can save those. There might be a little discoloration from drying on the vine, but. If you just soak your loofah sponges in some diluted bleach water, like 90% water and 10% bleach, and then rinse them really well, it's going to remove most of the stains from your loofah, and they will look all fresh and clean, and they'll be ready to use. You can use them to make yourself fresh and clean leaf sponges are really durable they really are and they are going to last a long time if you keep one in the shower just hang it up and let it air dry since they are a natural item they can grow mildew and if they're if they're left soggy too long they don't air dry in between your showers mm, it can get like A a washcloth where they kind of take on a weird odor and you definitely need to wash them Um, you can't really throw um, a loofah sponge into the washing machine but you can sanitize them with just a quick dip in some diluted bleach water since they can get to be about 2 feet long they make super bath sponges they make really great bath sponges and you can just lather your those loof sponges up and scrub all over and if you have a nice long one you can even reach the middle of your back if you have issues with squash vine borers, you know those awful moths that lay eggs on squash plants and then the larvae get up all in the vines. Well, guess what? Squash vine borers don't like loofah plants. So, if you're looking to outsmart the squash vine borers, try loofah this year. Speaking of squash vine borers, I think I'm going to take the opportunity for me to launch right on in with my annual rant about squash vine borers. So what are squash vine borers? The simplest explanation is that they're jerk bugs. That's what. They are jerks. Now, they aren't poisonous, they don't bite or sting people, but they are jerks because they kill squash plants, and then you get no homegrown squash. They're jerks. I know. It's just a bug being a bug, living its bad bug life. But it sucks. <laughs> they destroy Squash plants. Squash vine borers are orange and black moths, but they are shaped more like a bee or a wasp. And I gotta say, I hate to admit this, but they're kind of attractive. Oh my god, they are. They're good looking bug, but don't be fooled. They are jackass bugs. (laughs) They don't have the typical moth-shaped wings, you know, like kind of butterfly-shaped. No. Squash vine borers look more like a bee or a wasp, but they are excellent pollinators, and they are just super, super really attracted to yellow squash flowers. But of course, being jerks, they lay their eggs on squash vines. Their eggs look like tiny, rust browned poppy seeds. Those eggs will develop into larvae, and the tiny caterpillars burrow into the squash vine, and that's where they live and grow inside. And they absolutely love living inside of a squash vine. but as they're doing they're saying the poor squash plant starts having issues with water and nutrient flow like you know a clog in your pipes will impede the flow of water these guys bore their way into the base of a squash vine And once they get inside, they do nothing but eat, poop, and grow. If you look at the damaged area, you're going to see this yellowish, brownish crust. And all that is, is their poop. And their poop is called frass. Imagine that. So, while they are all up in your squash vines, growing and pooping being jerk bugs between the frass and the damage in their fat, grubby little bodies. Nutrients and water can't circulate to the other parts of the plant. And your squash vines are going to start looking thirsty and stressed out. So even after watering them, squash plants aren't going to perk up squash plants with squash vine borer damage just will not respond to watering eventually the larva will have eaten and grown so much that the squash plant can't overcome the damage and it's gonna die eventually but by the time we notice there's something wrong it's too late Squash vine borers are a big deal for organic backyard gardeners They are hard to control organically Conventional pesticides like 7-Dust and all the others They will take care of bad bugs But they also end up killing the good bugs too And ultimately they mess up soil biology healthy soil is a mini living ecosystem it's pretty sensitive too because the soil critters depend on each other to help bring, break down organic matter in different but symbiotic ways I personally don't use synthetic pesticides and I don't recommend them because I know what they can do to soil biology. When it comes to these squash vine borers, it's really tempting to want to reach out and use some sort of harsh poison, but that's not what I'm gonna do. All right, so, Two years ago, I had these fantastic pumpkin plants that were growing. They were growing so well. And I also had these really special black zucchini plants that I was growing. And I swear to God, every single one of these plants, both the squash and the pumpkin plants, were killed by squash vine borers. So... I was so mad that summer Um, to the point that last year I was so determined. It was ridiculous. I was obsessed to have homegrown squash and I was going to outsmart those stupid jackass squash vine pourers. And when I say I was obsessed, I was obsessed last summer I mean, I went out and checked at least twice a day on my squash plants. I'd get up in the morning. If I came home at lunch, I would go out and check on my plants. And then as soon as I got off work, go back out to the garden and check on the plants again. Hand picking off the, um, the eggs and then crushing them between a rock to make sure that they wouldn't survive. Yeah, I was out there doing that three times a day, picking off all those little eggs. And I've gotta say that worked pretty well, but in spite of my efforts and not being there 24 seven, I did end up with some larva living in my squash vines. Fortunately, I took measures and I was able to save some of my squash plants. I think I ended up only losing one in the very beginning of the, of the year. But I was able to harvest a decent amount of squash last summer, and I actually still have some in the freezer. One of the most extreme organic methods of eradicating squash vine borers mm, involves doing some crude vine surgery on them. This is where you slice open the vine and then carefully dig out the white grubby larvae and hope that your slicing and digging just doesn't ruin what you've left on the vine. If you're interested in this method, there are several videos and pages out on the internet. Just look it up, look up um, squash vine borer surgery, and that should bring up plenty of options for you. Now, I also implemented another technique last year to terminate squash vine borer larvae. And it's kind of the next level organic eradication program. If you have squash vine borers that have set up a little nursery inside your squash vines and you want to get rid of them, then this is one of the things you can try to do. Organic gardening can be totally savage, especially when it involves squishing or crushing squash vine borers. Now this particular technique for attempting to save a squash plant from squash vine borers involves a lethal injection of BT directly into the vine BT stands for Bacillus therogenesis. This is a bacteria that is deadly to insect larvae, but completely harmless to humans and pets and plants. It's extremely appropriate for organic gardening. If you ask for BT at your local nursery, they're going to know exactly what you're talking about. So... This other method involves obtaining hypodermic syringes and then filling them with diluted BT and then injecting all of that into the squash vine where the larva has taken up residence. Last year, I did have a hard time trying to figure out how I was going to obtain the syringes. I looked on Amazon. It was gonna take like a week for them to get here, but then I remembered that I could get them from the feed store. And you can pick up needles and syringes at the feed store. They are really cheap, like $5 for a set of six. Wasn't all that much. Now, According to the instructions from the internet, what you really need is one CC of BT. The package said to dilute it, so I follow the directions on the BT package. Last year I loaded up the syringe with BT and I just headed out to the squash bed with a needle full of BT. I am sure I looked like a total idiot marching out across my backyard, out to the garden with my filled syringe pointing straight up to the sky. I told y'all I was totally obsessed. I was totally obsessed with eradicating these squash vine borers anyway the idea is to inject the bt right where the larva has set up its all it can eat buffet in your squash vine the vine will look kind of bulging you know swollen and strained and there's going to be quite a bit of crusty dark yellow frass right where the larva is living in the vine All you gotta do is just poke that needle right into the bulge and it's gonna slip in really easy. Just squirt some BT up into that bulge. The larva will have started munching on the vine from the inside out. The needle will be able to puncture the vine super, super easy since the larva has already started breaking down the vine cell wall. If you have a spot that looks like it might be infested, just gonna jab it with the tip of your syringe. If it's hard and won't go in easily, then you you won't be able to inject any BT. And it's probably not infected, but you're gonna have to check your plants every single day because it happens really quickly. You're gonna have to look for those signs of squash vine borers. But as soon as you see legit larva activity, like bulging stems plus that yellow dark frass, inject it with some BT. The BT kills the larva, and then you stand a much, much better chance of saving your plant. And probably the best thing that you can do to avoid walking around like a maniac with a syringe in your backyard, (laughs) probably the best thing that you can do if you have an infestation this year is to remember where you planted your squash and then don't plant squash again next year because those jerks can live in the soil and they will just be a problem for you again next year. I am growing some squash this year. Um, it's am I'm gonna I've got it planted in its own dedicated squash bed, and I'm growing a winter squash variety this year called Candy Roaster. It's like this weird pinkish peachy loaf shaped squash. Um, I don't really know all that much about it, but I'm really hoping the squash vine borers don't find it this year and if they do I hope they don't think it's very tasty only time is going to tell but I promise you I'll report back to you on my squash plants and let you know how they're doing well friends I'm done for the day I hope you have a great week if you happen to subscribe to either of these papers The Taylor Press or the Elgin Courier Be sure to look for my column in the next editions My column appears in the Taylor Press every other Saturday And in the Elgin Courier every other Wednesday Thanks again for joining the show I hope you guys have a super last week of April